it's Tony Chapman, and welcome to Chatter That Matters. In this age of noise, I cut through the chaos and the confusion to focus on what matters most to your life, your career, your community, and our planet. At the beginning of every podcast, I ask an essential question, and then together, we go on a quest to mine for insights and identify the big ideas that will help you get to where you need to go. Have you ever wondered how some people manage to do it all? Well, in this episode of Chatter That Matters, I talked to one of them, Mary DePauli, Executive VP and CMO of the Royal Bank of Canada, one of the world's leading banks. Mary, how would I describe her? A positive force in nature to her children, her partner, extended family, the community, employees, everybody that comes around her. But she's also one of the most astute business executives and marketers I've ever met. The same 24 hours we all deal with, she does it all with a sense of calmness, confidence, and conviction. Here are some of her lessons in life and leadership. Mary, you're one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met, and you know that I mean that, and I mean that because I've known you for a very long time. This lovely mother, so passionate, you talk about your your children, your eyes shine, partner, uh, humanitarian, and somehow on top of all of that, you've created a career where you now hold arguably one of the top marketing jobs in North America, and you're part of the executive leadership team of one of the top banks in the world. How do you do it? Well, that's very kind. Um, you know what? I'll, I'll start by saying every day is different. And, uh, you know, you begin Monday a certain way, and by noon it looks completely different. So, you know, I would say that um, you have to know what comes first. And, you know, only you know the answer to that question as an individual. For me, the answer is my girls come first, always. Um, and I've just been blessed to be a mother, and I and I, I view that um, as just, you know, the, the greatest purpose uh, that, that I could ever have been given in my life. Um, you know, but, but days are complicated. So the way I start every day is um, I'll start being just very highly organized. And I think, you know, as I've observed people that I've admired, the one trait that they've got is that they are highly, highly organized, but they're able to pivot as things change. And so, you know, you've got to let go of certain tasks in a day in favor of tasks that are going to be more important. Um, you've got to remember the priority in your mind and in your life, and you've got to stick to it and not not be apologetic about it. And um, and I think the other, the other thing is you've just got to learn how to be resilient because if you beat yourself up every day, that takes time, and it's time you don't have. So being planful, just knowing what you want to get out of a day, and, and spending time where it matters would be the things that – I think have just you know been helpful, but look, it's hard, right? I mean, there's there's been no perfect day, and you uh, you just have to make the best of it, and and um, and not beat yourself up. I mean, you talk about this sense of uh, uh, you know wonderment and having these children and what you give, but you're also part of a uh, of a enterprise, and in any given day, might suddenly call up and say, "We need your strategic mind here." Yeah. How do you? If you talk about pivoting, how do you? pivot so effortlessly and not feel guilty because obviously you're sacrificing one thing for another when your day is at full. Yeah. So so I'll start by saying I don't use the word sacrifice. I use the word choice. 
if it ever felt like a sacrifice, I'm doing it wrong. Um, so for me, everything is a choice. And, and you're right. I mean, certain days, uh, I mean, I remember when, you know, for example, my kids were younger and they'd go through the night with toothaches and flus and, and all the rest of it. But I might have had a board meeting the next morning at 8 a.m. And I've got to be ready for it. And I've got to be ready, you know, um, in terms of what they expect of me and also what I expect of myself, which, you know, in, in all cases is pretty high performing. Um, you just have to drive through it and, um, and know that leaving things to the last minute is usually a recipe for disaster. So if, for example, if I know I've got something on a Tuesday and it's important, I will start mentally preparing for it and writing it out and speaking to people and iterating in my mind. It might be on a drive home or it could just be at my desk with some notes weeks before. So that if I ever run out of time, the, you know, the day before, the moment before, I'm still going in at 99%. Um, so it's just about being very planful about what you know is expected of you and not to leave things to the last minute. So I'm with Mary DePauli, and she is the uh, chief marketing officer for uh, Royal Bank of Canada on the executive leadership team. And you, you talk about, I want to spend a little bit of time on what you just said. So as you're starting to think about the big events that are coming up, you actually will go through in your mind scenarios of what might happen and what might unfold so that you're, so you're mentally creating this sort of... Uh, chest of treasures that you can draw upon if needed yeah is that something that you, you, just comes naturally to you is that something you kind of learned along the way no I think you learn with experience I mean certainly when I was younger um, you know you learn by trial and error um, but as I got older you know being organized being planful knowing what's expected of you knowing when the moments that matter are coming up and being ready for them. Um, you know, I had a great mentor um, in a gentleman by the name of Gary Brent, who used to run the global wealth management um, uh, department at uh, TD Canada Trust. And um, I remember one day he pulled me into a meeting and I had absolutely no warning, but I needed to know in that moment what my department had to contribute. And, and fortunately for me, I was able to just rattle it off because I'd been thinking about it and I'd been preparing for that moment, deliberately or not deliberately, probably for a long time. But you know, knowing what you are good at being ready, having the information, surrounding yourself with people that are constantly sharing with you and having curiosity, you'll typically be ready to mobilize when you need to. Talk to me a little bit about curiosity because you use the word you're very organized and you're methodical that's not always in the same attribute set of somebody that's curious who might be just think nothing about spending two hours just letting their brain meander trying to look for some nuggets how do you how do you have that left brain and right brain working so yeah long? that's a great question um I'll call it organized curiosity I will I mean I live in a highly structured life at least for right now. Um, my job is very structured. Um, my life as a mom is very structured. It's around two people that, you know, that need me for various, for various things and my daughters. Um, so what I will do is I will carve out structured time to read and think and, and just not have an agenda. It is amazing 
um, you know, how people feel when there is a moment in time where they don't have an agenda, if they're very agenda driven all the time. And so I will ensure my weekends are wide open. I will ensure some evenings are wide open because as a marketer, I need that creativity. Like I need to be able to think and free form and be curious and explore because if I'm not, the, the, the work will never have the potential that it needs. So I want to spend a little bit of time with uh, your earlier career. And I know you're from Hamilton and I, you know, as a friend, I know that you're, uh, you know, that you just have this real sense of uh, being with real people and, and, the, and, the, and all, the, all that comes from coming out of a, a smaller town. But you ended up in Washington and you're working in the newsroom of CNN and I believe NBC. Yeah. How did that happen? Um, so I graduated um, from Western and decided that the most compelling place at that moment in time in 1992 was in Washington. It was the Bush Clinton election, and it was such an interesting time in American politics. I found a program that allowed me to have what we know today as work integrated learning. Um, and so that work integrated learning or internship took me to CNN, um, which was a two day a week stint for a student. But afterward, I then signed up for a second stint, and that was what took me to NBC. And I just did four days out of seven. I figured if I'm in Washington in this kind of environment, I want to squeeze everything out of this orange, right? I, I really just wanted the most fulsome experience I could as a Canadian. And, um, and so that's what brought me to Washington. And it truly was one of the most incredible things that I think I, I could have done in my life. I learned so much, not just scholastically, but about work and, and the experiences that uh, you have with international students. And did you, did you find being in that sort of environment where you have to get a, the news out, that, that sense of deadline, did that help sort of prepare you for where you are now, where you must be dealing with constant deadlines? Constant deadlines, you know, um, reputational risk, crisis communications, um, you know, the, the demands of, of, you know, your staff, right, because they need you. Um, it did. And CNN, you know, at the time was still quite novel. It was the first 24-hour newsroom that uh, that was in existence and now of course news is is omnipresent um, but it really did teach me a lot and I would say the big thing that I learned um, working at CNN and even at NBC or in an election year was do every single job you possibly can put your your hands on and I, I will tell any young person that you know if they ask you to grab coffee grab it um, you know, I was in a situation where I would order Larry King's dinner every Sunday. He, and I still remember he liked lemon chicken and I would be the first to order it because I could give it to him and then sit down with him and ask him what he thought about the people he was about to interview. And so, you know, or, you know, I'll write the news. I'd fix the printer. It didn't matter. You're about to bump into someone that could change the trajectory of your life. So, you know, my my experience was just make every moment matter and don't be... Um, don't be, well, let me, let me phrase it this way. Be humble. Do it all, right? Just do it all because that's how everybody learns in the beginning. Do you find that this, you know, everybody sort of stereotypes this generation versus that. Do you think this new generation where the world's within arm's reach of desire, where they can, they can escape in a moment into their mobile phones, do you think that they have the same appreciation for what's happening around them that you, you had in that newsroom where you wanted to be, it was almost like a, a, a Christmas tree and you wanted, to be, you wanted to shake every ornament? Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, 
I, I hate to categorize any generation as having all the same traits because I think so much of it depends on how you were raised. Um, what community you grew up in, um, what you did with your spare time. If, you know, there's, there's so many things that go into the formation of how someone views the world and, and takes the world in and makes it their own. Um, what I will say is there's so, much, um, there's so much that young kids today can have instantly. And so they're receiving little bursts of gratification almost every few seconds. You know, what, what, I, what I like to think of, though, the way we grew up, those of us of a, of a different vintage, is that those bursts were fewer, but they were deeper. And you took more out of them, and you, you were able to pause and observe and, and analyze them more, as opposed to just being inbound information constantly, without a moment to say, what do I think about that? How do I feel about that? Um, so, so I think, you know, today's generation, you know, generally, I would, I would just advise that it's not just about what's happening or what you're reading, but like, do you have an opinion on it? How deep is that opinion? How well-rounded is that opinion? And have you ever paused just to, just to stop and, and think through what implications might be for you or your community or your country? So how receptive, because that's, that's a very different approach. I love what you say that, that it was fewer of them, but deeper in the sense of this gratification or this validation Versus today, where you're looking, for, you're searching for a lot of immediate. You put up a post on uh, Instagram, and you figure out who likes it or not. I want to sort of pivot and take just what you talked about and move it into the business world, because in some ways, the metaphor in business world is we we might have had a, a, a much deeper relationship with the customer in the past because it was face-to-face, that you got to know who they were, uh, you could look into their eyes, you could sense their emotions. And nowadays, a lot of it's moving online and more transactions. And that's kind of a, to draw the metaphor, do you think, do you think b- business can find that magic spot, continue to find that magic spot where they have those deep and meaningful relationships, knowing that, especially with the today's generation, the sense of immediacy is something that they value? Yeah, I absolutely do. Um, you know, what, what I would say there is, I'll, I'll talk about banking, but I think the this notion of customer intimacy and the customer experience applies, of course, to any industry. You know, in banking, though, people will still view their money as being a very personal thing. And, and, and those life events where money is an enabler of something bigger is where I think a lot of companies are, are focused on more now than ever before. You know, a first house or, you know, uh, a vacation home or buying a car or taking a trip or whatever that, that definition of a momentous life event might be. Um, you want to know that you're sitting across the desk from someone that can actually help you make a great decision for a great outcome. Um, you know, how you build a legacy. That's not something you can just sort of, you know, thumb on your phone and, and figure out fairly easily. Um, you know, how you plan for the future, how you plan to leave something behind. These are things that require people and relationships and knowledge and, and understanding. It's EQ and IQ and, and banks play a huge role in the culmination of that experience. Where, where banks and other companies are playing less of a role is when things are just kind of quick utility. So, you know, it's an irritant if you've got to go into a bank and deposit a check. So why not put that functionality online and make it mobile? You've now suddenly made me a believer in your service because you just saved me time. So I think what you're seeing is a separation between 
the utility that can often cause friction or is of less value, you want to automate all of that. But where it counts, we actually want to double down on those moments because those are the moments that matter to people. And, you know, whether it's, you know, the travel industry or it's the manufacturing industry, this sort of bifurcation of low value and high value is where I think technology can help. But you're always going to have a world where people and relationships matter. So you're dealing with a, a world where a lot of employees are being asked to do more with less. And at the same time, an organization that says, I'm going to double down on relationships. How do you ensure that you free up the time so that people can make that effort so it doesn't look like faux relationship? It doesn't look like it's just a glossy brochure, but you're actually imagining that person's first home or you're so excited that they're going on a holiday and you've, you've helped them be part of it. In other words, how do you go from kind of just telling your story that we're a bank to becoming part of theirs? Yeah, so I think the key there is the talent. And that's where HR departments are incredibly powerful in an organization because you want to recruit and train and keep people that understand, you know, the life of a customer and the experiences of a customer is where you make or break a brand. And I've always believed that a company's frontline people are the best ambassadors that they have for their brand. You can you know, you can do media buys and, and TV ads all you want, but if that experience at the front line is mediocre or negative, it'll make or break a brand, especially in today's world of social media where we share everything. So I think it all begins with the mindset of the person you're hiring. You know, are they customer focused? Are they intuitive? Are they curious? Are they friendly? Do they have EQ as well as IQ? And importantly, do they have AQ, adaptability quotient? So are they able to look into a conversation and say, you know what, this might actually be something different than it appears. Can I probe and adapt and figure out what this person really needs? That's where the value comes in. And it all starts with people. So the as you start moving in the future with banking, there's some critics that would say, the concept of payment is going to be taken away from banks. I mean, Alibaba, about 40% of the of the that what they processed in their version of Cyber Friday, their 11-11 or Winner's Day, was done through eye scans and fingerprints. Yeah. Uh, Facebook's trying to come out with their own currency, uh, and is are the banks in danger of being Ubered because they'll be sitting there kind of trying to separate this, as you said, low value and high value, and some someone's going to ride an app like a Trojan horse into a phone and completely reinvent things like the way they've done in travel or, or retail? Yeah, you know, um, I don't know that we live in panic and fear, but we certainly are watching traditional and especially untraditional players in this world that is becoming increasingly cashless. Um, you know, you can order groceries through your fridge, you can order concert tickets through Alexa, um, you know, wearables, um, your phone. So this, this notion that I can have anything I want, anytime I want, and often without the physical transaction of handing over dollars, um, is just a new world that we live in. And, and you know, we, we accept it and we're innovating around it. In fact, instead of looking at it from the standpoint of it's, you know, it's a world filled with disruption, it's actually a world filled with opportunity because there are companies that have gone a different route than the Kodaks of the world. Um, there are companies that have scale that, that are hungry enough to reinvent. 
And it all starts with listening to your customers. So, you know, can we be the intel inside those transactions? Of course we can be. Um, can we partner with friends and foes to deliver what's right for a customer? Absolutely, and we all are. Um, but I think ultimately the world will um, favor the brands that invest in the customer experience and creating frictionless um, transactions, frictionless uh, points of exchange, because that's what people want. Um, the biggest commodity that, that you know we all crave is time, and we don't have enough of it. So any brand that can make it a surprise and a delight and efficient and static-free is a brand that's going to win. They'll be timeless. So if you could go back and, and think of yourself as that young Mary, whether it was at CNN or when you first moved into financial services, what advice do you wish you had back then? I think, I think when I look back, there would probably be two things that I would tell my younger self. The first would be, don't be so hard on yourself, right? Be, be kind to yourself. Um, you know, we, we always talk about things like the imposter syndrome and, you know, are we ever good enough, smart enough, um, witty enough, uh, ready enough? Um, you know, and I think, I think as long as you've got the fundamentals and you work hard and you're a good person and you're curious and, and you're eager to learn, um, if you're not hard on yourself, you, you'll go a lot further. So, so that would have been the first thing that I would have told my younger self. Just be kind to yourself, your younger self. The second thing that I would say is, you know, you are the sum total of the five people that you spend the most time with. And you've got to pick wisely. So when you think about who you spend time with the most, you know, this is the group that influences how you think, raises you up, or holds you down, inspires you, or detracts from your stride. And so who you spend your time with is a pretty big indicator of, of how you will operate day to day, week to week, month to month. Picking people that are additive to you and you being additive to someone else, I think is a is a really important thing to, to, to think about. And I will just often take stock of who am I really spending a lot of time with, you know, day to day, week to week, and is it healthy? Is it, are these healthy relationships? I probably would have thought of that a lot more in my 20s, I think. Mary, when I talk to great leaders, they always talk about their mentors. You must have had some mentors. Who were they and what lessons did they tell you? Yeah, great question. Um, I'll tell you, the way I viewed mentors before is different than I view it now. Today, my mentors are young people. Um, you know, young kids that are now in the office with a different point of view, and I, I will micro-mentor with them. And usually it's reverse mentoring. So I will spend 15, 20 minutes with them and get them to download, you know, something happening in pop culture or just the way they're viewing the world. And it's these sort of micro-mentoring moments that I'm getting from young, younger people. And that's how I view mentoring today. But over you know, decades of working, I've been very fortunate to have four mentors that have just meant the world to me. Um, Don Stewart was one of them. He, he was the CEO of, of Sun Life Financial. And in Don, he taught me to have a global view, not a local view. And you know, the best of what you learn around the world, you can always apply to your local day to day. And it was just a very different way of viewing the world, um, a world that was connected, a world that was just more inclusive and, and much more dynamic. Um, in, in Jennifer Torrey, 
um, I learned about resilience. So Jennifer has spent 42 years at Royal Bank, was one of the you know most senior female bankers and, and grew up in banking when it was a very male-dominated industry. And the lessons she's taught me about resilience and, um, and how to spot talent has been phenomenal. Um, Kevin Doherty, I would say, is another mentor. Through Kevin, it was about walking the talk, right? If you want to be a, a great leader, you've got to walk that talk. And, and I learned more from Kevin about leadership than, than anyone else. And the fourth mentor and last mentor that I'll call upon is, um, is you. And I will never forget the day that I met you and uh, what was supposed to be, you know, a one hour lunch just to kind of get to know you as, as a name in the industry turned into this three hour deconstruction of, of, you know, the creative class and humanity and, and everything else. And what I learned from you was you are one of those rare people that never lost your thirst for life and you know never taking things too seriously um, I watched you as a father raise two incredible girls who are now you know it, unbelievably successful in their jobs but really as people and they got a lot of that from you I mean you you are just someone that knows how to live and it's amazing the older you get how much people lose that zest for life but you've always retained it and I just admire you for kind of the, the example that you lead as a, as a business person and the example that you lead as a, as a father. And uh, you've always inspired me. I'm glad the uh, listener can't see me blush. <laughs> <laughs> what are the three things I'm going to take away from my interview with Mary DePauly? Number one, people. People matter most. She loves her family, cares deeply about the people in her life, but what I think really makes her this extraordinary marketer is that she also cares deeply about the consumer and not in some superficial way. As a banker, she doesn't talk about mortgages or any other financial product. Her eyes shine when she talks about helping people buy their first home or make intelligent choices or set themselves up for retirement. Second thing is prioritization. She can't get everything done in a 24-hour day, so she says what gets her through is her superb organizational skills. Identify the tasks that really matter. Family always comes first, but in business, she has the confidence and courage to focus her efforts and time in areas of value and where she can add value. She also has the ability to say no where she can't. And finally, preparation. Real great insight. She prepares her presentations by making her audience the hero. She imagines their need state. How are they going to digest the information she has to present? And then in her mind, she identifies every possible scenario. So when they ask a question, she's not only considered, but prepared for her response. Mary DePauly, one that matters. You've been listening to Chatter That Matters. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can connect with Tony on Twitter at Tony Chapman, through LinkedIn at Tony Chapman Reactions, or visit his website, TonyChapmanReactions.com. Chatter That Matters is produced by Tony Chapman Reactions and High Contact Productions. I'm Dave Traffic.